Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, August 21st, 2023. This is Bucky Rogers, Lifeline's Global Orphan Care Regional Coordinator, and today we'll begin our study of the book of Titus, uh, chapter one. I once had a mentor who said something to me that at first I thought was pretty crazy. Um, He said, Bucky, you'll always do that which you most want to do. I thought, no way. There are so many times when I would rather do one thing, but I end up doing something completely different. But the more I've thought about it over the years, the more I'm convinced he was right. Even when we act on behalf of others' best interests, rather than what we want, we're still doing exactly what we most want in that moment. Why? Because our belief determines our behavior. In any given moment, what you're doing is based on what you believe to be true. For instance, many of you this morning got into your car, turned the key in the ignition, or pushed an ignition button. Why did you do that? Because you believe that you, in doing that, would cause your car to start. Why did you get into it in the first place? Because you believe the car would get you to work or school or wherever you needed to go today. Does it always work? Of course not. Sometimes the car doesn't start. Sometimes our belief is not placed in a solid place, but still those beliefs determine our behaviors. What we truly believe determines what we actually do. You could tell me all day long that you believe a ladder is completely safe and sturdy, but if you refuse to step onto it, your actions tell me that you don't really believe what you just said. This disconnection between what we say and what we believe uh, and what we actually do is one of Paul's primary reasons for writing to Titus. He was writing this letter around the same time that he wrote 1 Timothy. It has a lot of the same flavors, really, as 1 and 2 Timothy. And just as he encourages Timothy to choose godly leaders and hold fast to the faith that's been entrusted to him, he does the same for Titus. But to Titus, he goes even just a step further and focuses on the practical behavior that results from a life has been truly transformed by the gospel. These works, which don't cause salvation, but rather demonstrate it, are just really lacking in the church at Crete, and I would say in many of our churches today. Paul encourages Timothy to think about what a godly leader in in the church looks like in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he talks about godly leadership in the home, and then he wraps up the letter in chapter 3 by talking about godly citizenship, godly leadership within the citizenry. To fully understand where Paul's coming from, we need to understand a little bit about Crete. Crete was a country just south of Greece, had over 100 major cities. It was a metropolis of seaports and trade, sea-weary boatmen coming in for a night or a week and then going back out to open water. It was a moral wasteland, and everyone was out to get everyone else. Crete had a bad reputation. You can even see this down in verse 12, as even one of the Cretan prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I I think this prophet might have been describing my children. And then the very next verse, Paul even agrees with that assessment. It's believed that even the ancient Philistines who came against Israel often in the Old Testament actually originated from Crete. So Titus had a really difficult post. But he had been used by Paul in the past in difficult places as well. We know that Paul used him to settle up some disputes in Corinth um, and uh, another city with a really bad rap. Um, The church at Crete had not been officially planted by Paul, but rather had begun after Pentecost. Acts tells us that some Cretans were 
present at Pentecost and heard the gospel in their own language and were saved. And they went back and, as happens so many times, began to try to make the gospel fit with the culture of their people. And therein lies the problem. The gospel doesn't fit our culture. The gospel is meant to transform our culture. So Paul starts in chapter one addressing exactly that issue. In blending back with their culture, the believers in Crete were forgetting who they were and what their purpose was. So Paul starts by reminding them. So let's read this whole chapter, then we'll go back and take it verse by verse. Titus chapter one. Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent for greedy gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Father, I pray this morning that you would just teach us from your word, God, that you would give us the things that we need to hear, that would shape who we are and how we behave. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse one, Paul starts by saying who he is. He gives his name, uh, but then he further describes himself with two different words. Uh, he says servant and apostle. Uh, the word for servant here is actually a bond servant. As you probably know, servanthood and slavery in Israel was not a permanent condition. Uh, most times people were placed into servanthood in order to pay off a debt of some kind, uh, or to pay some sort of penalty, but even that was not permanent. They would be released after paying off that debt, or on every Sabbath year cycle when the slaves were released, or on the year of Jubilee. Sometimes when that time came for a servant to be freed, they would willingly choose to remain under their master for life. They would have their ear pierced to signify that they were a bond servant, um, one who had chosen to stay with their master, even as a freed man. And this is such a beautiful picture of our walk with Jesus. We are free, but we willingly place our will under the care, protection, and lordship of the will of another, namely Jesus. We have a good master who loves us and who is in control, so we submit to him as bondservants. The second word that he uses to describe himself is apostle. The word apostle literally means sent one. Uh, it carries the meaning of a steward or an ambassador, one who's specifically chosen to represent someone in a higher position than they are. 
when that happens, the ambassador is not to speak or to make decisions based on what he thinks or feels, but he has, has to and always represent the one who sent him. He carries with him both the will and the authority of the one who sent him, but he's also in complete submission. This picture of a sent out servant is who we are as believers. But why then are we sent out? Paul answers that in the second half of verse one. There are three reasons he gives here, three purposes for what he does. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. First, he says his life is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. We could do an entire month of podcast on the word elect, but for this purpose, the elect simply refers to those who will place faith in Jesus for salvation. Paul says his life is for the purpose of those who will be saved. What a beautiful purpose statement for life. More, more than feeding or clothing or helping someone with physical issues, our life has to be first and foremost about the gospel. People need Jesus. Then he specifically says his purpose is their knowledge of the truth. And this knowledge isn't just knowledge for knowledge's sake. That kind of knowledge just puffs up. No, this knowledge is that which accords with godliness. It is a sanctifying knowledge. It's a knowledge that changes us. Again, a belief which changes behavior. He then says that this faith and knowledge is in hope, hope of eternal life, which God, ne who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now notice our hope is not in ourselves or anything that is shakable, but it is grounded in the unshakable character of our God. And this promise uh, was made to us before the ages began. His will and his plan are secure. Think about it. The worst this world can do to us, the worst they can do, if they dragged us out into the street and took our lives, the worst they can do is send us to be with our Father. What an incredible truth. What an incredible truth that erases all fear because of the hope we have in Jesus. Then verse 3 tells us that this hope at the proper time is manifested through the preaching that had been entrusted to Paul. Notice the importance of preaching. I've heard it said that we should share the gospel always and when necessary, use words. That's a really nice saying, makes for a great wall plaque, but there's a small problem. The gospel always requires words. The words of the gospel introduce us to the one who can transform lives and cause dead people to walk again. Romans 10, 14 says, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. And then in Jeremiah 29, but if I say I will re not remember him or speak his name anymore, then in my heart, it will become a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. The simple truth is preaching matters. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, it's likely that Paul led Titus to the Lord, discipled him, and so he refers to him as his true child here in the faith. And then he says, grace and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ our Savior. And here he begins to outline the qualifications for elders in the church. This was the reason Titus was even in Crete. In fact, we see in verse 5, this is uh, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And this word that's translated put into order has the same root where we get our English terms uh, orthodontist and orthopedist. It's that ortho 
um, prefix. Just as an orthodontist sets teeth right, an orthopedist set bones right, Titus was to set right what was broken. He was to evaluate, plan, and set it right. And from here, Paul starts giving some qualifications of what Titus was supposed to look for uh, when he was establishing these elders in Scripture. Um, the words elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer are used interchangeably. So uh, this role carried with it all of that pastoral leadership and care. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it can be put with other lists from First and Second Timothy and elsewhere, uh, just to help us get a full picture of what we need to be looking for uh, in our church leaders. Starting in verse 6, it says, uh, the elder is to be above reproach. Uh, that doesn't mean perfect, but what it does mean is that no charge could be brought against him, and any charge brought against him would not stick. Um, this happens as a result of him living out the rest of the qualifications given in Scripture, so that what he says he believes in matches what he truly believes and works itself out in his actions. Then he's to be the husband of one wife. Uh, the word literally means a one-woman man. Um, the nuances of this have been debated for centuries, but the clear truth is this. He's supposed to be a man who's faithful to his oath. He is to have one wife and is committed to her as an example for others. Paul goes on to say uh, that his children are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, this doesn't mean that your children have to be perfect. No children are perfect. In fact, if you're listening and you have perfect children, please come and teach me your ways. <laughs> Rather, they're, they're to be believers and their actions are to reflect a changed heart. The trajectory of their lives is to point to Jesus. You see, the, the training ground for an elder is not in a class. It's not in a book or a conference or a meeting. It's in the home. The training ground for an elder is in the home. The way he leads and shepherds his home prepares him to lead and shepherd God's children. Paul then continues the list by giving the why. Because as an overseer, this is God's steward. He, he represents the one who sent him and the one who is above him. He is then, in verse 7, to be not arrogant. Um, the word is a combination of the words self and delight. A person cannot lead others when he's delighted in himself. It says that he must not be quick-tempered. Um, this carries with it the idea of one who feeds a fire. If, if you've ever been camping or if you know, uh, know about camping, when you put out your fire, if you're to add another log to it immediately, it would immediately catch fire. Uh, the one who's quick-tempered is, is one who is constantly stoking the coals of fire so that when the least little thing is added to it, it becomes a raging inferno. Someone who blows up like that is not level-headed and not capable of quality leadership that values people and points them to Jesus. He's, he's not to be a drunkard, the scripture says. Well, duh. <laughs> um, how can you lead when you can't even lead your own head? Uh, he's not to be violent, um, either with his words or his actions. He's not to use what God has given him to hurt others, but rather to help. It says that he's not to be greedy for gain. When money becomes a motivator, it quickly consumes any good your leadership might have accomplished. People will quickly see through that farce. Then in verse 8, he starts to say all the things that the elder should be. He should be hospitable, that is, loving strangers. He's to love those who he does not know, who he never, may never even see again and can't do anything for him. Uh, when my family and I lived in Uganda, we would minister in a slum called Katanga. It was a horrific place. Um, huge sewage trenches running through the entire encampment. People lived under broken tin sheets, leaned against sticks, and there were kids literally everywhere. 
playing in raw sewage, neglected, ignored. And our team would be purposeful to touch them, to pick them up, to throw them in the air, to give a big smile, to hug them. And there was a mother in Katanga one day crying and we asked her, you know, what, what was wrong? And um, she said, no one touches us. So why do you? This is what a godly leader is to be, is to be a lover of good, not pursuing evil. He's supposed to be self-controlled, that is, not living in bondage to his heart. The heart is wicked. No one can understand what the scripture tells us. And one who is in bondage to his emotions and desires can't possibly lead others well. He's also to be upright. Um, that just means just, to, to love justice and equity. He's to be holy. Uh, the way I like to define, define holiness is uh, set apart for a particular purpose and actively pursuing godliness. He's to be disciplined, that is, knowing when and how to say no. And then in verse 9, he's to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Notice this progression. He's to believe rightly, which comes from sound teaching of the word, so that he will be able to teach others and entrust this gospel to others. If he doesn't know truth, he can't share truth. Notice also that this in this whole list, this is the first skill that's mentioned, teaching. The rest are based in character. God wants to change us from the inside out to give us a new heart and new motivations and new priorities. Then he will work in us to will and to do his good pleasure and to teach that to others. Verse 10 begins a caution. It says there are many insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, I'm all about a good party, but this is one I think I'll take a rain check on. In all seriousness, though, he is referring here to Jewish legalism and even Jewish mythology, which he refers to again down in verse 14. There were people dragging people away from the clear truth of Jesus' teaching and back into legalistic anti-faith. Verse 11 tells us that these people were upsetting entire families, which makes a lot of sense because most churches met in homes at this point in the church. They were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And then he describes the Cretan culture again in verse 12, like we already read, that they had a reputation for being liars, evil, and lazy. And then Paul tell, tells Titus to rebuke them sharply. Sometimes we view telling people uh, truth as being judgmental. And sometimes that keeps us from speaking up. We think that when we will come across as judging, but can I tell you something? Speaking what God has already judged to be right or wrong is not judging. It's merely agreeing with God. If we say we love people, we have to speak the truth in love, even when it is correcting. For instance, if you knew that the road ahead, in the road ahead, the, the bridge was out, it was a huge chasm, you would tell people, don't keep going on that road. The bridge is out. You'll fall and you will die. If, if your own child was running toward that, you would do whatever it took. You would even shoot your own child in the leg to keep them from going off that cliff to their death. Loving people means speaking truth, but always in love. And notice the rest of the verse says that this rebuking is so that they may be sound in faith. Correcting and rebuking is always for the purpose of restoration and salvation, not for tearing someone down. God confronted the sin in each of our lives, not, not to condemn us, but to bring us back to him. Our aim has to be restoration.
And then this little poetic aside that's given to us in, in verse 15. Um, he says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This kind of reminds me of when Jesus was calling out the Pharisees and saying, why are you so busy cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside is still dirty? That's disgusting. Worry about the inside first. He called them whitewashed tombs, beautiful and pristine on the outside, but the inside just filled with dead men's bones. Only a redeemed heart can see, choose, and act in purity and devotion. Real devotion from the inside out. Then Paul closes by reminding us that without Christ, we can't do anything of eternal value. He says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for good work. Again, their behavior reveals that they what they what they truly actually believe. Friends, genuine salvation is the only answer for changing an evil, evil, an evil culture. And when true belief takes root in a person's heart, it shows in their choices and actions. Just a few points of application for us as we close up. Number one, remember who you are and what you're here for. We're here for the gospel, for the growth of others and sanctifying knowledge and to spread the message of hope of life with him forever. That's it. Second, when you start to question, fall back on God's character. It never moves. Third, godly leadership matters. It matters in the church, it matters in the home, and it matters in society. And fourth and finally, keep your cup clean from the inside out continually confess and ask God to renew your strength to get back up and to serve him fully. Stop disqualifying yourself for things that don't depend on you in the first place. Thanks for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. Um, this week we're praying for our work in Hungary. Uh, please uh, just pray for encouragement, strength, wisdom, and advocating for the broken and hungry. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth that shapes us. Please, God, help us to take seriously this call to godly leadership in the church, at home, and in the marketplace. Uh, God, we pray this morning specifically that you would be with our, our hungry teams. Um, we pray that you would give them um, encouragement as they face daily challenges. And God, just help to redirect their eyes, help them to keep and to fix their eyes on you. You've told us that in this life, uh, we will have trouble, but that we can take heart because you've overcome the world. We thank you for that. God, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study. Music